It's 10 o'clock by that one, so if you'd like to find your seats and get started. I have no jokes for you this morning, and I'm not going to sing. Yay! Yeah. Some time ago last year, when I was doing a couple of these, after I had done a couple of these sessions, um, Tim Draper asked me, he said, well, do you have anything to hand out? Because he had asked about what books that I suggested and that type of thing. And he said, do you have anything to hand out um, on that? So what I did is I looked through my library and on my PDF library and my, on my computer, and I got recommended books on bibliology. And so um, I have this. If you want one, let me know, and I can, I can either print one off for you or send it to you in the email. So if you want to do that, you can. Let's start off with prayer. Lord, we pray that you would calm our spirits and our minds to focus on your truth. There's so much that we have to talk about that is maybe strange to us and difficult. Give us hearts to understand and minds to receive, and may you be glorified in it all. In Jesus' name, amen. Why is bibliology important? A gentleman by the name of J. Hampton Keithley, he actually, some of you may have heard of him. He co-founded the internet website, Bible.org. He's a graduate from Dallas Seminary, so I don't hold that against him. But, um, and he was a pastor, I think, in the, the uh, Spokane area for like 28 years. He died back in 19, uh, 2002. But in his study of bibliology, he starts off on his, his section on uh, canonicity this way. I don't have my glasses on. Hang on. Hey, Sean, good to see you. Wrong one here. That would have been terrible because I can't see without them. Anyway, he says this, the fact of inspiration of the Bible as God's special revelation to man naturally leads to the question, since there were many other religious books written during both the Old Testament and New Testament, what particular books are canonical? That is, what books are inspired and should be recognized as part of God's authoritative revelation? Are there any inspired books missing? Are any books included that should not be in our Bibles? Is the Old Testament Bible the same as the Lord's uh, that he used in in the Lord's time? And is our New Testament the same Bible that our church fathers used? That's an important understanding. Is it? You know, we talk about a lot about inspiration and canonicity. So what do those terms mean? Dr. Geisler and Nix put it this way. He says, inspiration indicates how the Bible received its authority. Whereas canonization tells us how the Bible received its acceptance. It is one thing for God to give the scriptures their authority, and quite another for men to recognize that authority. 
So how do we know which Bible should be in the canon? That's what our study today is going to be about. How the Bible came to be accepted as the inspired word of God and why the 66 books that are in our Bible are the only ones that belong there. First, let's do some definition. If you have the outline, we kind of go along with that outline. I'm not going to, I didn't write all the definitions for you, but they're there in outward, um, in uh, outline form. The original meaning of the word canon is the Greek word kanon, K-A-O-N-O, O-N-O. It's most likely from the Hebrew word kane and the Akkadian word canoe. The word originally meant a reed, a reed growing by a, a, you know, a lake or a sea or something like that. And eventually came to have the meaning of measuring reed, a rod, and therefore a rule or a standard or a norm. That is where we get our understanding of a ruler being a measuring rod. Same idea. I found this interesting. The word canon also is found in the in the Corinthian games. And now what that was, it was also called the Esmenian games. And it kind of, it parallels the Olympics. So this very much the same type of activities went on in the Isthmian games or Corinthian games as they did in the Olympics. And they called it the Isthmian because of the isthmus that grows, it goes out on, on, on uh, the topography of, of Corinth. Anyway, the athletic idea is this. There were running lanes that the runner or that the um, charioteer had to stay in. Those running lanes were, guess what they were called? Canon, cannon. These are the lanes. Now, what happens when somebody steps outside the lane? They're disqualified. God has also marked out lanes for us as believers in his word for us to walk by them. Listen to Isaiah 30, verse 21. Your ears shall hear the word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Whenever you turn to the right or to the left, that's, that's the way we, God says, I want you to go. And it's his word that says, these are the lines I want you to stay in so you do not err. You don't go astray. Then also in Jeremiah 7:23, he says, but this is what I commanded them saying, obey my voice. And I will be your God, and you shall be my people. And walk in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may go well with you. Now, in regards to the scripture, the Bible itself, there's a theological um, definition or usage as well. The canon refers to authoritative scripture. Here's what F.F. F. Bruce says in his book, The Canon of Scripture. When we speak of the canon of Scripture, the word canon has a simple meaning. It means the list of books contained in Scripture. The list of books recognized as worthy to be included in the sacred writings of a worshiping community. Then he goes on. In a Christian context, we might find or we might define the word as the list of writings acknowledged by the church as documents 
of divine revelation, and that's exactly what it is. Now, the church also used it in history as well. The canon came to be a reference to the books that were um, developed by the early church fathers. The first clear uh, instance of the church fathers using the canon as the term canon is uh, as referring to the scripture itself was Athanasius in a letter in AD 367. So who determines, you'll cheat if you look at your notes, who determines what, who or what determines scripture? The, the scripture is canon. Canonicity is determined by God, absolutely. A book is not inspired because men uh, made it canonical. It is canonical because God inspired it. Now, there are distinctions that you really need to know about. Determination and discovery. This involves two related ideas, but they're, they're separate. Canonicity is determined by God, and canonicity is discovered by man. If you mix those two up, as Roman Catholic Church has done, as Greek Orthodox Church has done, if you mix those up, it's going to cause a whole lot of uh, uh, difficulty in understanding uh, how Scripture is used and who, who is the authority. And we'll see that later on. Historically, the term canon is used in the church for the doctrines that were accepted as the rule of faith and practice. Later, the word came to be applied to the decisions of church councils as rules which to live by. And in each of these cases, the word used was in the sense of a rule, a norm, or a standard. So the church would make this decree about a certain thing, like the virgin birth, and that was the standard. So they would make that, and that would be one of those councils or rules that they made. It's important to keep in mind that no religious council ever had at any time had any power to cause these books to be inspired. Instead, what they did was simply recognize the authority of the books that God had inspired. Norm Geisler uh, in an article that he wrote in 2005. Now, I told you last year that he died in 2019. <clears throat> he was one of the really great apologet- uh, apologists for the Christian faith and scripture. Anyway, he wrote in this, pa- in this uh, article, several centuries went by before all the books of the canon were recognized. Communication and transportation were slow, So it took longer for believers in the West to become fully aware of the evidence for the books that had circulated first in the East and vice versa. Prior to 313 AD, the church faced uh, frequent persecution. Now, when I say the year 313 AD, does that mean anything to anybody? When I tell you what it does mean, you'll understand. Anybody? 313 A.D. was when Constantine made an edict that Christianity was no longer to be persecuted, but they were to be in the level of all the other religions. Now, he didn't get rid of the pagan religions, but what he did is said, this is, Christianity is on the same level of them. No more persecution, no more murdering of, of, of Christians. 
So, prior to 13 AD, the church faced frequent uh, persecution that did not allow leisure for research, reflection, or recognition, or even life if they were killing you as a Christian. Soon as that was possible, it was only a short time before there had been general recognition of all the canonical books. In the councils of Hypo, 393 A.D., and Carthage in 397 A.D. There was no great need for precision until, here it comes, debate arose. Marcion, do you know who Marcion is? Do you remember him? Brian, you remember Marcion? He was one of the very first heretics that, are, that was noted in, in history. <clears throat> he was a strange dude. This is some of the stuff he, he preached, that the God that Je- that, who sent Jesus was not the same God that sent that was of the Old Testament. He said that Christianity is a complete, has, was in complete discontinuity with Judaism, entirely opposed to the, and he was entirely opposed to the Tanakh. Yahweh was not the same God spoken by Jesus. Just some of the things this guy did. The God of the Old Testament was the creator of the material universe, and he was a jealous tribal deity of the Jews, whose laws represent legalistic reciprocal uh, judgment, punishment of mankind, and all this other kind of stuff. But the God of Jesus, why? He was the God of love and compassion, and he was a benevolent. So this guy was just completely distorting the personality of God. So that's what's going on in, it, that was going on then at that time. So here comes Marcion and the other heretics. He published his Gnostic uh, uh, canon with only Luke and 10 of apostle, uh, apostle, the Apostle Paul's epistles. Uh, <laughs> he said that spurious gospels of the epistles appear throughout the second and third. Uh, he didn't say this. I mean, uh, Geisler is saying this. Spurious gospels and epistles appeared throughout the second and third centuries. Since those books claim divine authority, when we're going to look at the Apocrypha, we'll tell you what that is. That's what these guys are doing. They're shoved in there in between uh, the first few uh, centuries B.C. and into the, up to the time of Christ and a little after. Anyway, so these books claimed authority. So the universal church had to define the limits of God's authentic inspired canon that had already been known. So they were saying, oh, we got to get these in in this canon, in in these lanes of of what is inspired by God. So canonization was a process, and this is a good definition. Canonization was the process by which the books of the Bible were recognized over a period of time as authoritatively given by God. Paul uses the, the term um, gospel in well, actually four or five different places in the New Testament. That I say four or five because it actually depends on the manuscripts that your translation was used. You know when they translated it. Um, he uses it three times in Second Corinthians in chapter ten, verses thirteen, fifteen, and sixteen. Once in Philippians 
3, uh, chapter 3, verse 16, and once in Galatians uh, chapter 6, verse 16. Here's what Paul says in Galatians 6. And as many as walk according to this rule, kanoni, same basic word, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. So it is the standard that we hold all the books of the Bible to. Now we come to the, the, the idea of the canonicity of the Old Testament. It will seem strange, but you'll have to hear it out. I'm going to start with Romans. This is about the Old Testament. I'm starting with Romans. This is what Paul says in Romans 3, verses 1 and 2. What advantage then has the Jew? Or what profit is circumcision? Paul says, much in every way, chiefly because to them, to the Jews, were committed the oracles of God. Paul is writing these verses. He's referring to the Old Testament, which was entrusted to the Jews. And that's exactly true. The Jews were the custodians of Old Testament scripture. They were very faithful to their, their calling. And we'll see you know, uh, how much extreme care and um, attention that they, they show to it. Who knows how many uh, books are in the, our Old Testament? How many books in our Old Testament? Did you say 39? Very good, Steve. I knew he was thinking it. How many in the New Testament? Anybody? How many? 27. Thanks, Michelle. 27. Our Old Testament has 39, but the Jews didn't. You'll see. Our Old Testament canon actually comes from the Old Testament Hebrew Bible. The exact same books as the uh, Old Testament, uh, Hebrew Old Testament. Some Hebrew Bibles did. <laughs> Guess what, um, Rex? The 1611 King James Version had the Apocrypha in it. How many of you knew that? Yeah. It was around for quite a while, and it got in a lot of Scripture. Some of the older Hebrews did include the Apocryphal writings, which we're going to discuss later, but they were never considered as part of the canon by the Jews. Not ever. Now, the Jews divided their... Old Testament into 22 or 24 books. Ours is 39. They're the exact same books, but they categorize them differently. And they put, they put them in different categories. Jews, um, the books of Moses, the law, the Torah, were later called the Pentateuch or the five. The books of the prophet were called the Nevi'im. The books of the writings were called the Setuvim later called the Hagiographa, which meant holy writings. The Hebrew Bible we have today is substantially the same as the original writings, only the difference is the vowel pointings, physical changes, the reading aids that are on, on the margins, and a change to a more open form of the writing, of the actual script itself. I found this interesting, yeah.
inspired, but they were still. Um, and you wonder why they put them in the inspired word, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll talk about that, too, because there are some of those books that are inspirational. Not inspired, but they're inspirational. Yeah. Many of the scholars believe that Ezra was the one who gathered the, the Old Testament in a whole, one, one group altogether, yeah, around uh, the 5th century B.C., the last book, Malachi, was written in 435 B.C., around 435 B.C. Ezra was called a sophir or a scribe. Sophir comes from the Hebrew word safar, which means to count or to number. This is important because they were called a counter of numbers. When you think of the meticulous way that these Old Testament scholars worked and, 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 and preserved the scripture. It really makes sense. Anyway, he, uh, Ezra's uh, considering the, the first in a long line of uh, sopharim, which is just plural of sopher, or scribes, who had the task of working with the scriptures after the return from the Babylonian captivity. They copied, they refined, they maintained the accuracy of scriptures and provided correct interpretations of their meaning. These sopharim were given the responsibility to copy and meticulously care for the sacred text so that they could preserve the correct meaning. How meticulous were there? Remember, I told you, were they? I told you that they were the counter of numbers. When they were copying, they copied Counting this way, oh, that wasn't the right one, they'd get rid of it. And they count up, oh, that's not the right letter, and they'd get rid of it. They couldn't make those mistakes. They counted this way and that way and every other way. I mean, if you've ever seen a rabbi read, they have this little doodad that points to them, and they're going along like this. That's kind of what they were doing, to check every, every word and every letter that was, that was in. So they were very meticulous. Then came the Masoretes who lived between 600 and 950 A.D. They were a group of Hebrew scholars as well who worked with preserving the scriptures, kind of like the, the Sopharim did. These are the same guys who actually translated the Masoretic text that is the basis of the Jewish Bible that they use today. And guess what? It's the basic Old Testament text of all of our our. Uh, translations today, the Masoretic text. So that's who these guys, that's why they were important. They, they too, uh, developed a number of strict measures to ensure that, the, that a fresh copy was an exact reproduction of the original. If it wasn't close, if they made one mistake, they threw it out. They established the tedious, uh, tedious procedures to protect the text against all change or any alterations. The Masoretes, known also as the traditionalists, are the ones who added the accents and the uh, vowel pointings in, and generalized, uh, stand, or generally standardized the Hebrew text. Original copies of the Old Testament were written on leather or papyrus. Who knows what papyrus is? Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what they did. They took a reed or whatever plant that's actually called a papyrus plant, and they peeled off the high, hard outside and the gooey, sticky stuff in there. They would cut into strips about 16 inches wide, I mean, along, and they'd lay them lap over lap over lap, and then they'd crisscross it and do the same thing, lap over lap over lap like that, and then they'd pound them with the hammer and let them dry. It's like a thick piece of, of paper is what it was, but it deteriorated over time. Anyway, that's what they, they were made of. From the time of Moses, about 1450 B.C., to the time of Malachi, around 400 B.C., that's what they used. It wasn't until the absolutely miraculous, in my opinion, find of the Dead Sea Scrolls did things start to change. In 1947, there were these caves at this place called Qumran. It was on the western side of shore of the um, Dead Sea. Some Bedouin guy was out there throwing rocks and stuff, and he heard something break. And he went up there and, ooh, here's some pottery. It has some stuff in it. That's how they found this. 19, so he, they, they actually started taking them and selling them to, piece, uh, to people. And, and, of course, the archaeologists got totally excited about it. Anyway, what's important about that is up until that time, we did not have a copy of the Old Testament in Hebrew earlier than 895 A.D. That becomes significant when you, when you figure out that because these guys meticulously kept Scripture and preserved it, the Dead Sea Scrolls, when they were discovered, made a, a leap from 895 A.D. to the 2nd and 3rd centuries B.C., that's what these were dated. That's amazing. Interesting part about it is the more they read, the more they uh, uh, got into these uh, scrolls and saw the, these Dead Sea Scrolls, it proved over and over again the validity and the accuracy of the Masoretic text, showing that those guys who, who made those copies really knew what the heck they were doing and were really you know, very proficient in what they did. Now, that isn't the only um, ancient, um, oh, i got to tell you about this. I got this article <laughs> out of this book. It's called Holman's uh, Quick Source Guide to the Dead Sea Scrolls. And when these guys found the Dead Sea Scrolls, they used scotch, paper, uh, scotch tape to glue them together. Well, you know what that does? You, over the years, if you see scotch tape and something, you try it, it just messes it up. And they, oh, my goodness. So they ended up trying to get carbon-14 done on it, and then there was some guy that did some studies on handwriting, and you could actually look through history, the various changes in handwriting, and you, you could actually date certain things. Well, this guy, I can't remember his, his, his name. Something cross. Anyway, so he was dating these things like that, and so then they decided they tried a little carbon um, 14 stuff on it. And carbon 14 wasn't really very accurate. You know, it would say millions of years, or it might have been a thousand years. I mean, it, it wasn't very accurate until 
they come up with this new uh, method of using carbon-14. It's called accelerator mass spectrometry. And what this thing does, I watched a little video on it. What this thing does, you couldn't unroll those scrolls that were done because they crumbled in your hands. This spectrometry actually will unroll it. It's kind of like a, a MRI, how it slices pieces like that. Well, they do that, and they unroll it, and they put it back together, and then they could read it all the way rolled out. Isn't that fantastic? I mean, whew, technology is cool. Anyway, that's what was going on, so I wanted to just share that with you. <laughs> okay, there were other um, early checks in the Hebrew text as well. The Septuagint, the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament. That was done around the third, middle of the 3rd century B.C. There were Aramaic um, targums. Those were paraphrases or quotes from the Old Testament. There were quotations from the early church writers. And the Latin translation of Jerome, the Vulgate, was around, translated around 400 A.D. But he used, now 400 A.D., we didn't have the text until 8, you know, 95, right, until the Dead Sea Scrolls. Well, he used their text back then around 400 A.D., the, the Hebrew uh, text. So he used that specifically to do his translating into um, Latin. Anyway, all of those, all of those things. I got this other thing, too, that was just exciting to me. I kind of get excited about some silly things, but <clears throat> you also have these other ancient writers. Um, that uh, attest to scripture like Polycarp around 115 AD and Justin Martyr 100 to 160 AD and Irenaeus around 180. All these guys were talking about, you know, scripture and, and added um, validity to our translations and our canon. Anyway, well, Christ also attested to the Old Testament in Luke 24. I'm going to read this fast because I want you to get the context of what happened. Now, Luke 24 is at the resurrection and after. So things that happened in Luke after the resurrection. Uh, where is it? Well, anyway, he's fussing at the, at the um, Pharisees, and you guys do this and you do that. He says, whoa, you know, to you Pharisees, uh, you tithe mint and rue and all this other stuff, but you bypass you know, justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving others undone. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like graves which are not seen, and men who walk over them are not aware of it. See, if you touched a grave or a dead body, you were then unclean. But if you didn't know that, how could you have a sacrifice for being unclean? Well, so that's what he's fussing them out, fussing to them about. Well, then a Pharisee comes up to him, and he, he says, uh, Teacher, and what had happened to the Pharisee had, had invited him to his house to have dinner. And he, the Pharisee noticed that Jesus didn't wash his hands. Oh, that was a no-no for the Pharisee. They were very strict. So, you know, he, so he started on his, his woe to the, those Pharisees. Then one of the lawyers, scribe, answered and said to him, Teacher, by saying these things, you reproach us also. Duh. 
And he said, Woe to you also, lawyers, you scribes, for you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burden with one of your little fingers. Woe to you, for you blind, uh, for you for you build tombs of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. In fact, you bear witness that you approve the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and you build their tombs, like a uh, uh, memorial to them. Therefore, the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, that's insane, may be required of this generation, Jesus is telling them. Whoa. From the blood of Abel, book of Genesis, to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the temple. Yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. That doesn't come into significance until you understand that Second Chronicles is the last book in the Hebrew Bible. So it was as Jesus was saying, from Genesis to Malachi. You guys are blowing it. From Genesis to Malachi. So that's how Jesus was, was affirming the, the Old Testament. Jesus also mentioned the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, which is part of the writings in Luke chapter 24. This is the part that's right after the resurrection. These two people are walking on the road to Emmaus. Remember the story? And they're carrying on and they're boohooing and all this stuff that's going on. Now behold, two of them were traveling the same day to the village of Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. That's a long walk. And they talked together about all these things that had happened. And so it was, while they were conversing and reasoning, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But... Their eyes were restrained, so they did not know him. I want you to remember, their eyes were restrained. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is that that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? And they said, where have you been all this time? Haven't you heard? Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? Don't you know that the things have happened there? Don't you know it happened to him? He said, what things? So they said to him all the things that were concerning Jesus, who was a pro- we had thought he was a prophet and he had come from God. Then he scolds them. Listen to what he says. Then he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe in all the prophets that have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning him. They get all excited. You know, of course, he's going to have dinner with them, and and he vanishes, right? So they get all excited. Wow, wow, what happened to us? Let's go back and tell everybody. So they run back to Jerusalem, seven more miles, 14 miles. Now, for a forced march, you know, it's no big deal for Army and Marines, but, you know, these are civilians, right? But they were used to walking anyway. So, they were. (laughs) So, in Luke 24, verses 36, they went back, they they got with the the 11, and they said, oh, yeah, we heard about that, but Jesus appeared to to Simon. 
Now they said these things while they were talking. Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace be to you. And they were terrified and frightened and supposed that they had seen the Spirit. And he said, uh, said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said these things, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, Have you any food here? So they gave him some uh, broiled fish and, and honeycomb, and he ate it. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was with you. All the things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And guess what happens next? And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Those are powerful words. I would have loved to have been in this Bible study, in the Bible study before where he was talking to those on the, Wow, can you imagine hearing from the very voice of Christ what all those meant and the correct interpretation? When we get to hermeneutics, you'll see there's some pretty bizarre ideas about interpretation. But here it is, the Son of God telling them exactly what's what. Now, Josephus was one of the um, witnesses to early scripture. He was a Jewish guy, and he's an example um, He wrote around A.D. 90 of the 22 books believed to be divine. The 22 books were the five books of of the Torah, 13 books of the prophets, and the books of poetry, which included Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. So he was one that is first century attesting to what the Old Testament scripture was. Jesus and the New Testament writers also quoted somewhere around 295 times that the Old Testament was thus saith the Lord, or it was written. Some have higher up to to 300, some have a little less. And you know, we have no record of Jesus disagreeing with the Pharisees or the scribes or any of those in the Old Testament, you know, in his time, uh, debating over what the canon of the Old Testament was. What about the Apocrypha? Apocrypha means hidden or concealed. Did I mention I have this other big thing about the Apocrypha too? That's when I got off on one of these tangents. Some of you have no idea what the Apocrypha is. And it had things like um, didactic or liter- uh, uh, wisdom literature such as the wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, also called the wisdom of Jesus, the son of Syriac, historical literature, first and second Ezra, or first Ezra, first Maccabees. First Maccabees is pretty much a historical uh, account. Second Maccabees, much less so. Um, religious romance. Oh, you ought to like that. You, you ought to like that one. Tobit and Judith, romantic stuff. (laughs) 
Then there was prophetic literature, Baruch and the second Ezra's and, and uh, legendary editions, the prayer of Manassas, the rest, the rest of uh, Esther, the song of the three children, and it goes on and on. So ones that are, you know, some of us have never heard about. Anyway, these books, as I re- uh, uh, mentioned earlier, were never accepted by the Jews. They never put them in, in the, the, their canon. But in the early history of Christianity, there was some divided op- opinions about whether they belonged in there or whether they did not. The greater majority was, at that time even, that they didn't belong. But people who had read them, because they were inspirational, oh, they gave you, you know, the warm fuzzies, that you get from reading something. Well, this is the kind of thing that was happening with them. It wasn't because they were necessarily historically right or biblically correct, but they they had inspiration uh, from it. So from the early church, it kind of grew into the acceptance of the Apocrypha. Even though Jesus and the New Testament writers did not accept the Apocrypha, nor did they write about it uh, at all or use it in their, in their scriptures. It became more accepted over hi- history. Jerome actually included it in his um, Latin Vulgate against... He protested. He didn't want it in there because he did not believe that, that the Apocrypha was inspired by God. But the powers that be dictated that it, it had to be in there. And so that's what happened. It wasn't until 1546 at the Council of Trent that the Roman Catholic Church officially declared the Apocrypha to be part of their canon, with the exception of First and Second Ezra, uh, Esdras and uh, the Prayer of Manasseh. It is significant that this Council of Trent was kind of a response to and a reaction to, guess who? Martin Luther and the early Reformation. Interesting enough, as well, is the Apocrypha contains support for unbiblical Catholic teachings of prayers for the dead and justification by faith plus works, not by faith alone. So in, for, in affirming the Apocrypha, what the, the, the Catholic Church actually did was saying that the church has the authority to say what belongs in the canon and what doesn't. Whereas Protestants say, no way. You don't, the church doesn't determine what is inspired. God determines what is inspired. And that's why the Apocrypha is not in most, I would say, all Protestant Bibles. Now, there's good reason why we don't regard uh, the Apocrypha is, is canon. I got four reasons. I'll be quick. They do not claim for themselves the same kind of authority that the Old Testament did. They were not regarded by God's, uh, as God's word by the Jewish people from whom they originated. They were not considered scripture by Jesus and New Testament writers, and they contain teachings inconsistent with the rest of the Bible. So I think we'll stop now, and I'll finish this up next week and then go into the other one. Um, 
because I have more that I want you to hear and, and read, and it won't, it won't take you long to finish this up. I'm on, like, page 22 of my, my study here, and I go to 29, so let's pray. Lord, help us to be students of your word, lovers of your word, because we are lovers of you who gave your word. Help us to be molded into the image of Christ, and we see that only in your word. So we pray that you'd work your word in our hearts, our lives, in our minds that would focus on what is true because your word is true. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.